Let's go ahead and pray. We'll begin our time in God's word together. Lord, thank you that you are such a merciful God to us. You're the creator, the ruler, sustainer, the judge, but also our father. And you sent Jesus to be our savior. And by your spirit, you wash us and make us new. Lord, we come with full and grateful hearts. We are recipients of your mercy. We've earned none of it. We give you praise for all of it. Lord, we ask that you'd continue your work in us through the preaching of your word this morning. Speak to us, work in us for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're beginning a new sermon series through the book of Exodus. Exodus means departure. It means to leave. And the book of Exodus, as many of you know, I'm sure, tells the story of Israel's journey from slavery to salvation. It's one of the most epic stories that's ever been written. And unlike many other stories, every word of it is true. This story is packed with unforgettable characters. You have the unlikely hero, Moses. You have the cruel and tyrannical ruler, Pharaoh. He's the villain. Exodus is filled with unforgettable events. There's narrow escapes. There's shocking plagues. There's conspiracies and large-scale miracles, and God himself appears visibly. In addition to all these gripping events, we have the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, written in stone. This moral declaration would go on to leave an indelible mark on nations and societies and cultures ever since. No wonder the book of Exodus has been the source material for so many Hollywood films. But apart from just being interesting, you might ask the question, why should we study Exodus? Well, I want to share with you, as an extended introduction this morning, four reasons why I am excited to preach through this book, and I think it is fruitful and necessary for us as God's people. I'm indebted to Bobby Jameson for several of these thoughts and stimulating me to think along these lines. The first reason why I'm excited to preach this book and why we need it is, number one, God is awesome. God is awesome, and I mean that not in the flippant common sense of the word, but in its fullest and deepest meaning. To behold God is to be filled with awe. In Exodus, we find a God who reveals his name on the mountain to Moses. He speaks from the burning bush and says, I am who I am. He is the self-existent, eternal God. We behold him in this book. He is seen in this book to be a God of compassion and mercy who hears his people's cries and responds with deliverance. He's also proven to be a God of justice who sends plagues and crushes armies and kills the firstborn. He is a faithful God, a God who makes promises and keeps promises. Exodus is the record of God saying what he's going to do and then doing it. It's the unfolding of his covenant purposes as he keeps his promise promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus shows us that he is the God of power. And he powerfully proves that he is the one true God as he triumphs over all the supposed gods of Egypt. He rules the sun. He rules the Nile. He rules the animal kingdom. He controls the weather. It's within his power to give life and to take life. He parts the Red Sea. He defeats armies. He feeds his people with bread from heaven. He is a God of unmatched power. And he's a God of glory. 
When Moses draws near to the bush, God tells him, take off your sandals. The place you are standing is holy ground. He tells Moses that he will get glory over Pharaoh. When God touches the mountain Sinai, it is covered with thick darkness and the ground shakes and the thunder rolls down. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face shines. And when God draws near and fills the tabernacle with his presence, no one can draw near. He is a God of glory. When Moses beholds the glory of God pass before him on the mountain, Exodus 34, 8 tells us he quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. That is awe. And that's the response God desires from us. Reading Exodus is to encounter God, and God is awesome. To see God as he truly is, is always at every moment our greatest need, our highest need. That's why I'm excited to preach this book and why we need it. God is awesome. Secondly, Exodus is key to the story of Scripture. It's key to the whole story of Scripture. We need to understand the book of Exodus if we're going to understand the rest of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, because Exodus is at the heart of the Torah, this, these five books of the law. Genesis is really the prequel to the main event of Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all flow out of Exodus, showing us how all the pieces come together after the main event. So we need to understand Exodus to understand the Torah, the book of the law, the Pentateuch. But we also need to understand Exodus to read the rest of the Old Testament. Time and time again, we see the statement throughout the Old Testament scriptures, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Time and time again, we see reference to the law. Again and again, we see reference to the tabernacle. Where do all these things come from? From Exodus. Exodus is the birth of the nation. And it really contains three events, three scenes, so to speak, that reveal God's work in forming a people. The first scene is delivery from slavery in Egypt. That's chapters 1 through 13. That's the part that most of us are probably most familiar with. God rescues these people. He adopts Israel as his son. He initiates a relationship with them. Provides atonement through the Passover lamb. He does for them what they're helpless to do for themselves. The second scene is the giving of the law at Sinai. That's chapters 13 through 24. Here, God reveals his will for his new people. He defines the relationship, so to speak. And he does so in covenant terms. Establishing righteousness and justice. Giving form and structure to this new nation that he is forming. And then in the third and final scene, we see the construction and consecration of the tabernacle. Chapters 24 through 40. There God fills the tabernacle with his presence. This is, so to speak, the consummation of his relationship with his people. He's rescued them. He's he's given them the details and the law. And now he comes to dwell among them. And this has been the goal. That's been the plan all along. These three scenes are not only foundational for understanding the nation Israel. But they also reveal to us the nature of God's redemptive plan. At every stage, this plan of God's addresses what has been lost because of sin. It demonstrates faithfulness to his covenant promises. And it signals for us what God intends to do more perfectly and more fully through Christ. You see, only when you understand Israel's origin story will the rest of the Bible make sense. 
You see, understanding Exodus isn't just important for the Old Testament, for the past, but also for the New Testament and for the future. The Exodus is a paradigm of sorts. The events here are a living metaphor that hint at what will come to pass in the future redemption that Christ accomplishes through his death, burial, and resurrection. The Exodus is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It describes rescue from slavery. It describes atonement for sin, the shedding of blood. It describes adoption into God's family. And it shows us an example of passing through the water to go and serve God. There's amazing parallels between what God did then and what God is doing now. So we need the Exodus to better understand really our own salvation. Our own redemption follows the same shapes, the same contours as this story. And we'll see more of that along the way. So we need the book of Exodus because God is awesome. We need to see him, but also because it helps us understand the rest of the Bible, the story of Scripture. Thirdly, Exodus helps us to understand the mission of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 46. He says, if you believed Moses, the author of Exodus, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, gives us insight into the coming Messiah. Jesus is said to be a prophet like Moses. He is the one that God raises up to lead his people to freedom. Jesus is the true Passover. He's the Lamb of God whose blood is shed to take away the sin of the world. Jesus declares himself to be, in the New Testament, the I Am, the one who spoke from the burning bush. Jesus is the true bread from heaven, better than manna, who gives life to his people. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law, fulfills all righteousness. Jesus is Emmanuel, the God who dwells with his people, tabernacling, in a sense, among us. Old Testament scholar Wilhelm Vischer says it this way, the Old Testament tells us what the Christ is, the new, who he is. Couldn't agree more. But it's not just disconnected symbols that point us to the Christ. Even the event of the Exodus itself is retraced by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. We can see the parallels. Like, just like Pharaoh tries to kill all the baby boys in Egypt, Herod tries to kill the newborn king, Jesus, by slaughtering all the newborn babies in that region. And just like Israel fled from famine to take refuge in Egypt, so Joseph and Mary fled with their son Jesus to escape Herod's wrath in Egypt. And just as Israel came through the sea and traveled for 40 years in the wilderness, so Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and then enters the wilderness for 40 days. And there's even more parallels we could draw. And you might ask, why are there all these parallels? Is this just a coincidence? No, it's the fingerprint of God. It shows us that Jesus is the representative of the nation Israel. And that everything God promised to do through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. So we'll see the glory of Christ in the New Testament more clearly if we grasp the foundation that's been laid for us in the Old Testament, including Exodus. So Exodus helps us to understand the mission of Jesus. And then fourth, Exodus helps us to understand true freedom. Exodus helps us to understand the true nature 
of what it really means to be free. People today understand freedom as freedom from restraint or compulsion. The ability to define ourselves and and to determine our own behavior as we see fit. But Exodus tells us a different story. In Exodus, we learn that freedom from slavery means freedom for something. Specifically, freedom to worship God. We all know the famous line of Moses, let my people go. But it's always followed by this phrase, that they may serve me. And this is key. The book opens with with an enslaved people building cities for Pharaoh, and it closes with a free people building a tabernacle for God. The nation of Israel is set free not to serve themselves, but to serve the God who saved them. And here's the reality. We all serve something. We all serve someone. And to serve God is what we were meant for. That's what we are made for. It is the joyful privilege of the redeemed. It's the path to blessing. And God intends to set people free from sin so that they can be set apart to himself. Your salvation and my salvation does not end with liberation. It starts there. But that's only the beginning. Having been set free from sin, we are called, like Israel, to worship God. To represent him on this earth as a kingdom of priests. And we need this message today. We need to understand the true nature of freedom. So that's why I'm excited to start this series through Exodus. I know that God's going to use his word to help us see him more clearly. To be in awe of his glory I know that studying through this book will help us to understand the Bible better and to more clearly understand the mission of Jesus Christ. And I'm confident that it will challenge us to embrace our own calling as God's unique people in the world today. So that's a really long introduction to a sermon, but that's what I wanted to set up for us before we actually jump into the text. So we're going to try to cover Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 this morning. You can turn there if you're not there already. Exodus picks up where Genesis left off. In fact, if you're looking at the Hebrew text of Exodus, the first word is actually and. There's a narrative marker, a clue that shows this is the continuation of the flow of what's come previously. So to rightly read and understand Exodus, we have to remind ourselves of how we got here and what is going on. And that's what these first seven verses do. They set the stage. They set the stage for the great drama of the Exodus. What I'd like to do is share three simple points from these opening verses this morning that will prepare us for the story, the events of the Exodus. Now, first, we find in verses one through four, and it's this the covenant people are recipients of a great promise. The covenant people are recipients of a great promise. The book begins like this These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So verse 1 starts with a list of names and a location. We have the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, and they're in Egypt So who are these sons of Israel? Why are they here? And why is this important? To answer that question, we have to remember what happened in the previous chapter of the story. 
In Genesis, we read of a promise to a man named Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In chapter 13, verse 16, God says to Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Chapter 15, verse 5, he says, Look towards the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Offspring. Descendants. The seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In this promise of offspring, there's an echo of a word spoken by God in the garden. That the seed of the woman would be, or the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You guys know the story. The serpent had deceived Adam and Eve, seduced them into sinning. But God said that ultimately the victory over the enemy, the victory over wickedness and evil and death and the curse, would come through the chosen offspring. And that line continues through Adam and his son Seth, through Noah. And then through Abraham, and Abraham's son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob, Jacob who is given the name Israel. And through his 12 sons, who would become the heads of 12 tribes. At the end of Genesis, Jacob, in in chapter 49 of Genesis, pronounces blessings on his sons. And it's not there just so that we can see how nice their family reunion was at the end of the story. It's there to signal that there is more to come for these men and all who would descend through them. Jacob pronounces blessings on his sons. Their destiny is to be a great nation. As God had told Abraham, kings would come through them, specifically through the line of Judah. So this family that we have listed here in verses 1 through 4, it's not just any family. Blessing for all families of the earth would come through this family. This great promise, the Abrahamic covenant, will be how God furthers his plan to bring the blessing of salvation to the world. And it all rests on this family. The great nation that would later depart Egypt are a covenant people. They are heirs of God's promise. And their presence in Egypt, as we will shortly see, is proof that God is keeping that promise. He's keeping that promise. The covenant people are recipients of a great promise. But secondly, as we see in verse 5, The covenant people are guided by great providence. They're guided by God's providence. Look in verse 5. It says, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. The number 70 here is an interesting number. You have to be careful with symbolism, but the number 7 is typically a symbol of perfection, of divinity. And this shows us, again, God's fingerprints on this situation. They're not yet a great nation. You could say there's only 70. But they soon will be because God is at work. They may be in Egypt, far from the promised land, but everything is going exactly according to God's plan. And this becomes especially clear in the next phrase. He says, Joseph was already in Egypt. This points us again to God's sovereignty. The whole Joseph narrative, if you remember that last portion of Genesis, 
highlights that at every stage of the story, even at the moments where it seems most unlikely and most impossible, God is in charge. He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do, even if that's in surprising ways. The story of Joseph Joseph shows us God's providential guidance of all things, all circumstances, all events, in order to accomplish his will for his glory and the good of his people. God had called Abraham to Canaan, to the promised land, promised his descendants would live in that land. But that's a long way from Egypt. But God had brought them here to Egypt for a reason. Joseph was already there for a reason. If you remember the story, Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons. And his older brothers hated him because he was the favorite. And they became impossibly jealous. They sold him into slavery. And Joseph ended up in Egypt. First he was sold to the captain of the guard. And things seemed to be improving for him as he climbed the ranks. But he was falsely accused. Sexual assault. He landed in prison. But eventually, through an amazing twist of events, Joseph ends up interpreting the Pharaoh's dreams by the power of God. And Pharaoh promotes him to second in command in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. God was reve- had revealed to Joseph that there would be a seven-year famine that was coming. Seven years of plenty would be followed by a seven-year famine. And so Joseph was equipped to not only prepare Egypt to survive the famine, but also to give aid to neighboring peoples, including the family of promise, Joseph's own family. Sure enough, his brothers came seeking food, and they found there their long-lost brother. And the whole family was invited to come to Egypt and to ride out the famine there. Pharaoh even welcomed them and blessed them, gave them land and honor and and privilege there in, in the land of Egypt. And we see in this story that the wicked actions of Joseph's brothers are actually used by God to preserve the covenant people. It's an amazing story. God preserves the chosen offspring, the line, the seed, through which would come the Redeemer. In Genesis 45, verse 5, Joseph says to his brothers, they're troubled because they're afraid that Joseph will get vengeance on them. He says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Joseph had good theology. Listen to what he says. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The presence of Joseph in Egypt shows us the providence of God. The sovereignty of God on display. The survival of this family is essential to God's covenant purposes of bringing blessing to all the families of the earth. Undoing the curse, restoring his presence among his people. So when it says that the number of them is 70 and that Joseph was already in Egypt, we can't help but see the hand of God at work. Perfect plan, perfect timing, perfectly keeping his promises and accomplishing his purposes. 
covenant people have experienced God's great providence. The third observation we see in these seven verses is that the covenant people are fulfilling a great purpose. Look in verses 6 and 7. It says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Joseph and his brothers, they all eventually died. And so that raises a question. Does the death of the patriarchs mark the end of God's working? Does it mean the plan has stopped? The answer is no. Death cannot stop the furthering of God's purposes. We see that especially in the resurrection, Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So even though the patriarchal family has passed away and passed on, God's blessing on their descendants did not pass. The people continue to experience God's blessing. The promise of descendants, of offspring, of multiplication, it continues to march onward. And this language here that we see in these two verses, it reminds us really of God's commission to Adam and Eve, doesn't it? The command to be fruitful and to multiply. We see those words. They were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. That's how things started back in Genesis at the beginning. When the world grew so wicked that God sent the flood, you remember that he spared Noah and his family, and as they stepped off the ark, there was an undone creation and a new beginning, starting with Noah. And what did God tell Noah and his sons? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is like the chorus of the same song, and here we are again. God is showing us that these people are fruitful and they're multiplying and they're filling the land. This signals for us that once again, there is a beginning of something here. Not creating mankind all over again. He did that with Adam and then with Noah. But creating a new nation, a people. This is God's purpose, the start of something new. And it is God's work. Again, at the end of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 21, it says, He, speaking of God, He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord, your God, has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is God's purpose, and he's bringing it to pass. It is this nation, this multitude of people, who will be rescued from Egypt. It is this nation, this new people God has brought together, who will receive God's law at Sinai and enter into a covenant with him. And it is this nation that God will dwell among as he comes to fill the tabernacle. This nation is really a preview, isn't it? It's a microcosm of what God intends to do later. Not just in one nation, but throughout the earth, gathering a people from every kingdom and nation and tribe and tongue. Saving them, placing his law in their hearts, and dwelling among them. It's a preview of what's to come. So there's notes in these opening verses that God's plan is intact, but there's also notes that their things need to happen. Again, they are still in Egypt. They're not in Canaan. 
And the people are highly aware that there is more to come. They understand that they're not where God plans for them to end up being. In fact, at the end of Genesis, we see this as Joseph says this, Genesis 50, 24. He said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Those are the last words of the book of Genesis. In Egypt. You can put a dot, dot, dot on your page in the Bible if you want with your pen. Because those words are loaded with anticipation. They're pregnant with meaning. And Joseph knows it. He says, don't bury me here. Put my bones in a box because I know God's going to bring us into the land. Bury me there because that's where we belong. Not here. Not here. They are in Egypt now, but they will not be forever. And they are looking for the purpose of God to be accomplished. They're waiting for him to keep his promise. So God's plan moves forward in the multiplying, growing nation a nation that is now filling the land of Egypt, but a nation that is destined to fill the land of promise. I think that's what we see in these opening verses. As the stage is set, we see that these people are the recipient of God's promise. They've ex- they're here because of God's providence. They've experienced His sovereign guidance, preserving them here in Egypt. But they are a people that has a great destiny. God's purpose moves on. And as we see what happens in the following pages, we're about to see these things unfold. But I want to make sure we understand this morning that the promise of God is not just an important literary feature in Exodus. It's more than that. The promise of God must be held by faith in our hearts. This is a call to faith to us. The God of the covenant has brought blessing to the nations Through Jesus Christ, this plan moved forward and it resulted in Jesus coming and dying and rising again to form a new people. He would put his law on our hearts and dwell among us so that we can represent him in this world. So we can look back and marvel at at the, the twists that wind throughout history to see how God prepared the way for his son to come. But it's essential that our hearts be bound to God's promise. That we trust in his promise. That we believe his promise to us. That all who believe in his gospel will experience the blessing of knowing God. Being rightly related to him. Of enjoying his presence and experiencing life instead of the curse of death. Do you meditate on the promises of God? They are to be examined They're to be believed. God's promises are to be treasured and sung and prayed and proclaimed. So as you think about God being a God of promise, that's not just a helpful interpretive tool for Exodus. That's essential to our faith today. Grab on to that. Similarly, when we think about the providence of God, that's not just an interesting theme to trace through the story of Exodus. The providence of God is meant to be the confidence of the believer. It's for us. We know that God is in control. We know that even when people mean things for evil, that God 
means it for good. That even when we find ourselves, as it were, in Egypt, not yet home, not yet where we belong, not yet having received all that God has said He will give us, we can be sure that God has us exactly where He wants us and that the plan will move forward. Such a truth, this truth of God's providence, it has the power to crush anxieties, to dispel all fear. It has the power to humble the presumptuous and to encourage the pessimists. We need to see the providence of God and rest in it, to embrace it. It is for us. And then finally, the purpose of God. The purpose of God to create a new people who will worship Him and dwell with Him is not just a theological summary of what happens in Exodus. It is a cause for worship. If you know Christ today, if He is your Savior and you've experienced His redeeming grace, then that means that God has swept you up in His great purpose. He has blessed you with unfathomable privilege being part of his new creation, this new thing that he is building, that he is doing. It means that you are part of a story that is so much bigger than you, bigger than you can even imagine. And if you can observe this truth in Scripture, if you understand its relevance for you personally, and it doesn't cause you to laugh or cry or sing or pray or fall silent before God in wonder, then it begs the question if you have a pulse. Because such truths ought to penetrate the soul and stir us to faith, to obedience, to worship. So we can set this whole book up historically. We can pick apart the themes that we're going to trace throughout this book. But this calls us to worship the God who is behind every letter in this story. The stage is set for a great drama. A drama on a national scale that will shake the most powerful nation on the earth, events that will shape the nation of Israel, events that are going to move God's plan of redemption forward, and events that will establish a paradigm, a pattern for salvation, showing us the kinds of things that God intends to do in his world. So as we push forward in this book over the next couple months, my prayer is that we will be able to see God more clearly, to stand in awe before him, that we will understand his redemptive plan and purpose in more vivid detail and that we would be changed by the power of God's word. I'm very excited to continue this study. I hope you are as well. Let's pray for God's blessing on this study and pray that even today, that as our appetite has been wet for these truths, that we would even today be responding rightly to all that God has shown us. Lord, as we consider the rich, beautiful tapestry of your word, this incredible story with intricate detail and how it's unified by the truth of what you are doing in your world to rescue and redeem sinful people. Lord, we are amazed at your wisdom. Only you could plan such a drama. We're amazed at your power. Only you could accomplish such things. We're amazed at your goodness. Only you would send your own son to pay the price. And we're amazed, God, that we be able to participate in this plan, that we could belong to your family and receive your blessings. Lord, we thank you and praise you and worship you. And we ask that as we, 
as we study through the book of Exodus, that you would expand our minds to understand you and see you more clearly as you really are. That any wrong thoughts about you, about your character, about your purposes, any wrong thoughts would be obliterated by the clear truth of Scripture and that we would humbly acknowledge who you have shown yourself to be in your word. And I pray, God, that you would give us a deep sense of gratitude for your mercy, your salvation. And Lord, give us an excitement, not only about what you have done in the past, but about what you are doing and what you will do. Fill us with joy as we see your sovereign plan unfolding. Lord, if there's some here today who don't know you, I pray that today they would recognize that everything that's going on in their life, everything that's going on in this universe, ultimately is in your hand. And that they will one day answer to you. I pray that they would seek to know you, the one true God, as you've revealed yourself in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. Pray that they would draw near and trust in the promise of the gospel to redeem them. That they would too become part of this new creation that you are building. Pray this all in Christ's name.